The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Okay, everyone. Um, welcome to uh, today's meeting of the. Uh, the Trinity Center for Early Modern History Research Seminar. Um, we, uh, we've had a, a two-week hiatus, but we're delighted to be back with a paper uh, from Kathleen McCrudden, who has, um, I think I can, I can say, has just uh, completed and been awarded her, her doctorate in Yale um, and on a, on, a sub, on a subject which she'll be speaking of uh, today. Um, Kathleen has uh, studied in Cambridge uh, before Yale and has um, a number of publications uh, uh, out already. Um, and she will be uh, uh, speaking to us today on the subject of her, her doctorate, uh, Sophie de Bouchy, uh, Moral Republicanism and the History of French Liberalism, 1785 to 1815. So um, I think numbers have uh, fairly stabilized now. So I'm delighted to welcome Kathleen. And um, if any of you have any questions uh, in the course, and I'm sure there will be plenty of questions uh, in the course of the paper, um, if you just like to uh, place them or type them into the chat function, and that, um, then we'll have an opportunity to discuss them at the end of Kathleen's talk. So Kathleen, over to you. Thank you. Um, um, first, I want to say thank you very much to the Trinity Centre for Early Modern History Research Seminar, um, the Trinity Long Room Hub, and of course, Joseph Clark for that um, wonderful introduction. Um, I'm very glad to be here. Um, so, on the night of the 29th of January, 1783, three men forced their way into the house of a couple named Thomasa, farmers in the village of Vigny near Troyes in the Champagne region of France. The, the couple were tied up, possibly tortured, and robbed of their meagre possessions. Soon after, three suspects were arrested. They were Nicolas Lartois, Charles Pradier, and Jean-Baptiste Simard, cattle traders and brothers-in-law. Nevertheless, it was not until June 1785, two and a half years after the original crime, most of which the three men had spent rotting in jail, that the regional authorities began to investigate the case. A mere two months later, the judges of Chaumont pronounced the verdict, guilty. The sentence, life as galley slaves. But this was not the end of the tale. The procureur du roi, or prosecution lawyer, felt that this punishment was far too lenient for such hardened and reckless criminals. He appealed to a higher court, the Parlement of Paris, and it seemed that the Parliament agreed with the prosecutor. On the 20th of October, 1785, they condemned Lartois, Pradier and Simard to death on the wheel. This meant that they would be tied to a cartwheel with their limbs stretched out. As the wheel slowly turned, their arms and legs would be broken with a steel bar. In a final act of mercy, they would then be strangled. If you're recoiling in horror at this image, do not despair. You are not alone. 
Indeed, one of the Parlement judges who had dissented from this judgment, Emmanuel Freton de Saint-Just, put his foot down. In a move that it was itself highly illegal, he showed the trial papers to his brother-in-law, brother Charles Dupaty, a magistrate from Bordeaux who was staying with him in Paris at the time and asked for his help. Dupaty, equally horrified, became convinced of the three men's innocence. He persuaded Fretel to petition for a stay of execution and in the meantime, set about producing a public defense of the three men in the form of justific justificatory pamphlets. His indignation about the injustice of the legal system and heartfelt appeals to the compassion of the population proved wildly popular. Marie Antoinette, the Queen of France herself, was said to have purchased one of his memoirs. Eventually, his campaign bore fruit. In December 1787, Pradier, Simard, et Lartoise were declared innocent. And what is more, they're allowed to turn the tables and sue their accusers. So, a happy ending. But why, you may ask, have I spent the first few minutes of a talk, supposedly about Sophie de Cruchy, regaling you with an anecdote about an obscure criminal case of late Ancien Régime France? There are, in fact, two reasons. The first is that it was in the context of this trial that Grouchy, who was in 1786 the 23-year-old daughter of a traditional French noble family, met her husband, the famous philosopher and mathematician Nicolas de Carida, the Marquis de Condorcet. This relationship would shape her intellectual endeavors and her political contributions for the rest of her life. The two lawyers who conspired to undermine the Parlement decision, Fréteau and Dupaty, were both uncles of the young Grouchy. Despite Dupaty's widespread popularity, the Parliament itself had not taken kindly to what it perceived as a challenge to its authority and ordered his pamphlets in support of the prisoners burnt. In response, Condorcet, who had already made a name for himself as a reformer under the short-lived Ministry of Turcot, leapt in to defend Dupaty and echoed his calls for an overhaul of the legal system. The two men met and Dupaty in turn introduced Condorcet to his niece. Condorcet seemingly fell head over heels, and despite the difference in age, Condorcet was then 43, it did not take long for him to win Grouchy over. They married on the 28th of December 1786. Describing his happiness to a friend a few days later, Condorcet wrote that despite his own, quote, lack of agreeable attributes, his zeal for the affair that occupied her uncle, and for everything that can enlighten men or make them happier, had led Grouchy to agree to, quote, share my feelings, my work, and reward me for it. But it is not only Condorcet's zeal for the affair of the Trois-Rouis, as it would come to be known. This meant, literally, the three men who are to be broken on the wheel that is, that is important here. And this is the second point of significance about the case. My archival research indicates that Grouchy was just as interested in the Trois-Rouis as her husband. It seems, for example, that during one particularly eventful dinner party, she shocked her guests by expressing a desire to kiss two of the imprisoned men. Indeed, newly uncovered documents suggest that Grouchy's key philosophical treatise, The Letters on Sympathy, was in fact initially conceived in 1786 and heavily adapted to include her response to the affair of the Trois-Rouis over the period 1786 to 1789. Let us take a brief step back here and give a little background to those of you who are unfamiliar with the life and work of Sophie de Grouchy. I'm going to assume that this is most of you and there's no reason why you should as she remains a relatively little known historical figure. 
particularly in comparison to her far more famous husband. Indeed, despite the fact that there has been, in the last few years, an encouraging flurry of articles which take her philosophy, political contribution, and cultural activities during the French Revolution seriously, my recently completed, completed PhD dissertation remains the only monograph-length study of Grouchy to do so. The existing books, many of which are decades old, tend to portray her through a Vaseline-coated lens as a beautiful and tragic helpmeet to her brilliant and tragic husband. A quick biography then. Following her marriage to Condorcet, Grouchy moved with him to Paris, where she hosted a salon in the Hôtel des Monnaies. She remained by Condorcet's side when the revolution broke out, diving with him into the political maelstrom, and both came loosely to be associated with the Brissotin or Girondin faction. Importantly, Grouchy and Condorcet were among the first of the revolutionary elites to declare themselves to be Republicans, in the sense of opposing the institution of monarchy in July 1791. They only truly separated when Condorcet was forced into hiding by the Montagnards during the terror in July 1793, a separation that would eventually be made permanent with his death in 1794. Grouchy supported herself through this period mainly by painting the portraits of those being sent to the guillotine. Under the directory government, established after the fall of Robespierre, she remained in Paris and continued to move in political circles. Although initially supportive of Napoleon Bonaparte's coup d'etat in 1799, she quickly became disillusioned and after around 1802, moved to a house she had purchased in the countryside. Grouchy continued to host an international intellectual and literary salon in the so-called Maisonnette until her death in 1822, where she welcomed guests as renowned as Italian novelist and poet Alessandro Manzoni. She is best and generally only known for her treatise Letters on Sympathy, Lettres sur la Sympathie, which she published in 1798 as a companion piece to her translation into French of Adam Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments. As the Letters on Sympathy was the only extensive piece of philosophical writing that Grouchy published under her own name in her lifetime, it makes sense for us to begin there. I will therefore first talk first about why the letters were written, their contents, and how they formed the foundation for Grouchy's political vision for the rest of her life. In the second part of my presentation, I'll discuss Grouchy's relationship with Condorcet and her revolutionary republicanism. Here, I will talk a little bit about the methodology that underpins my project. In particular, I will suggest that Grouchy and Condorcet's partnership was itself a piece of lived and embodied philosophy, which can in turn be read by historians in a comparable way to reading a text. In the third section, I will touch on the Napoleonic era. I will discuss how Grouchy adapted her cultural activities in response to the changing political climate and how these activities too can be read as a form of political expression. Indeed, I will suggest that Grouchy was in this period developing an early form of liberalism that would in turn help shape the contours of French liberalism more broadly. I'll conclude with some brief thoughts on why I think this study of Grouchy is important, even for those not invested in the life and ideas of a comparatively unknown French noble, Republican and proto-liberal. So, to begin at the beginning. Most scholars agree that although published in 1798, 
The letters on sympathy were in fact probably written sometime around 1791 to four in the context of the early revolution or the terror. It is this assumption that I want to dispute with my tale of the Trois Rouets. Both archival and textual evidence suggests that the period 1786 to 1789 is a far more convincing date for the original drafting of the letters on sympathy. And moreover, that the case of Pradier et al, with which we began, was a major factor in spurring Grouchy to compose elements of it. I won't go into the nitty gritting of this redating here, but I'm more than happy to talk about it during the discussion period. The Letters on Sympathy was not, therefore, as scholars such as Sandrine Berge have argued, a revolutionary tract aimed primarily at justifying the republicanism that Grouchy and Condorcet declared in 1791. Rather, it was participating in an older tradition, that of treatises which aimed to reform the legal system through an appeal to a wider discourse of natural rights. This genre had first been popularized in France by Voltaire's defense in 1763 of the Calvinist Jean Keller, who had been accused of murdering his son to prevent his conversion to Catholicism <clears throat> and had become a veritable cottage industry by the time Dupatie and Condorcet joined the fray in the 1780s. This context is important because it provides the foundation for a new interpretation of Grouchy's letters. It was, at heart, not an anti-monarchical tract, but a treatise on natural rights. When we read the letters through this lens, a key element of the text comes into focus that has thus far been passed over. This is the importance that Grouchy placed on individual motivation and agency in her exploration of the subject of natural rights. In writing her letters, Grouchy harnessed a trend in natural jurisprudence during the 18th century, which has been identified by scholars including Dan Edelstein, Michael Sonninger, and Knud Hackensen. This was to see natural law not as a rarefied discipline for lawyers and scholars, but instead to stress the connection, excuse me, to, to stress the role of the common individual in discerning the content of natural law. So what was Grouchy's theory? Well, she began with the basic unit of the individual and his or her self-interest. Notably, Grouchy's individuals were non-gendered and were not differentiated by any inequality in status or ability to reason. They were all simply human. She then introduced the key concept of sympathy, Sympathy, the ability, quote, to feel in a similar way to how others do, is a natural emotion, according to Grouchy. When we see someone in pain, we also feel pain. We therefore want to stop it. On this simple foundation, Grouchy constructed a mechanism by which every individual could, through the use of their sentiment and reason, come to an understanding of moral right and wrong, and also access the truth of transcendental natural rights. The key thing to note is that through an appeal to sympathy, Grouchy thus linked the individual to broader social goals. In particular, universal respect for the rights of others. Actions resulting from sympathy are, at heart, self-interested. We want to help someone in pain, not through some pure altruistic motive, but because then we will also stop feeling pain. But it is also a fundamentally other-oriented emotion and results in actions which help other people. Individuals acting on sympathy, according to Grouchy, can never be atomistic or entirely selfish. Her entire philosophy was thus aimed at linking disparate individuals to a larger collectivity, whilst not subsuming these individuals into an anonymous whole. She wanted to demonstrate that it was possible to have a society in which people, 
as people were valued, valued on terms of perfect equality, but also had the ability to put aside their desire for instant gratification in favor of the achievement of larger social goals. The main reason why the society did not yet exist, Grouchy argued, was the existence of, quote, vicious institutions, including social and economic inequality and a corrupt and corrupting legal system. These institutions warped the working of sympathy in humans so that they were unable to properly sympathize with each other. Thus, current social structures have put men and women, quote, in chains which they have become incapable of judging and breaking. In such circumstances, individuals cannot know what their natural rights are, what is due to them or to others. This was, of course, a deeply political critique written in what would be the final years of Ancien Régime France. However, it would not be until after the outbreak of the French Revolution that Grouchy would integrate the ideas she developed in her letters into a recognizable theory of the state. And it is here that scholars of Grouchy tend to falter. Aside from the letters on sympathy, Grouchy published no other, no other treaties under her own name. Efforts have been made to identify one or two journal articles during the early years of the revolution that she may have written. And a substantial part of my archival research has been focused on adding to the number of published or manuscript texts that we can attribute to Grouchy. But it is clearly the case that she did not produce a neat set of oeuvres in the guise of a Rousseau, a Smith, or even a Condorcet, the sort of body of work that many intellectual historians have come to expect. So how, once we have explored her early and foundational letters, can we track the way in which Grouchy's ideas developed through the revolution and into the Napoleonic era? I suggest that one way to do so is to take seriously recent developments in so-called global intellectual history, I'm particularly inspired by the work of Shruti Kapila and by Samuel Moyne's call for historians to apply, quote, a sophisticated social theory that recognizes that the ideational is part of the institutional and practical, and that how human beings live materially is not some prior inquiry to how they live ideationally. To put it in, in its most basic terms, my project is founded on the idea that we can attempt to read Grouchy's actions, her political activities, practices of sociability, and the choices she made in her relationships as constitutive of her philosophy. This methodology undergirds my entire project and is applied side by side with more traditional methods of textual exegesis. In what time remains, I want to give you two examples of this approach. The first, to which I shall now turn, is what a consideration of her marriage to Condorcet can tell us about how she adapted the ideas she put forward in her pre-revolutionary letters on sympathy into an original form of republicanism. Let us begin first with the infamous night of the 20th of June, 1791, when, the, when King Louis XVI, aghast at the turn the revolutionary, revolution had taken, attempted to flee Paris with his family. After a number of clownish missteps, they were quickly captured at Varennes and returned to Paris. But Cruchy, Condorcet, and a small circle of their friends, noting the dismay of the populace at the king's perceived betrayal, seized the moment to, take to make a dramatic announcement. On the 1st of July, Paris woke to find posters plastered around the city, including on the door of the National Assembly, deriding Monsieur Louis Bourbon as, quote, an imbecile and declaring the founding of a new journal, Le Republicain. 
In so embracing republicanism, Grouchy had to make a decision. Would she jettison her pre-revolutionary commitment to balancing the importance of both the individual and the collective, and instead prioritize the strength of the polity as a whole? This would be broadly the classical Republican route. This early modern discourse, most fam famously identified by J.G.A. Pocock, emphasized civic virtue and individual self-sacrifice in favor of the public good. Or would Grouchy adopt so-called modern Republicanism? This discourse, described by historians like Richard Watmore and James Livesey, has most commonly been associated with French revolutionary politicians like Jacques-Pierre Prissot and Etienne Clavier. Central to their political vision, according to Livesey, was the desire to reconcile, quote, the revolution's commitment to the collective regeneration of the nation with its matching commitment to modern individualism. If Grouchy chose this path, she could maintain her desire, displayed in her letters on sympathy, to place equal value on both the individual and the collective. Both discourses were present in the language of French revolutionary actors. I suggest that if we read her marriage, we can find evidence that Grouchy did continue to believe that the individual must not be subsumed into the collective, but also that it was crucial to create social links through sentiment that would tie these individuals to a larger whole. In other words, through a study of Grouchy and Condorcet's relationship, we learn that during the revolution, Grouchy's philosophy blossomed into a unique form of modern republicanism best described as moral republicanism. I'm happy, by the way, to talk more about my choice of this label during the Q&A period. Grouchy's relationship with Condorcet has traditionally been portrayed in one of two ways. Either Grouchy was an eager but an inferior acolyte to her genius husband, or Condorcet was entirely enthralled to his vivacious, intelligent, and much younger wife. This latter narrative dates all the way back to the 1790s. Grouchy, for example, was attacked by name in the Jacobin Club in April 1792 by a radical left-wing Montagnard deputy for having blinded Condorcet into taking the wrong side in a political dispute. I suggest that both of these approaches are unhelpful. They put too much emphasis on the traditional question of influence and pay not enough attention to how the marriage itself was enacted. If we focus on the latter, we will see that Grouchy and Condorcet saw their relationship not only as a marriage, but as a piece of philosophy, which together Grouchy and Condorcet lived, breathed, developed, and honed every day. So let us now turn to the relationship itself. As we have heard, Condorcet envisaged a partnership style union from day one. Remember he said, share my feelings, my work, and reward me for it. Yeah, before the revolution, intellectual work in their marriage seems to have taken a relatively traditional pattern. Condorcet was the prime mover and Grouchy more or less his secretary, for example, writing correspondence on his behalf. However, following 1789, this relationship began to shift. From this date, we begin to see Grouchy's handwriting appear not just on Condorcet's correspondence, but also on his political and philosophical manuscripts. The textual evidence makes clear, moreover, that Grouchy was not simply taking down dictation for an exhausted Condorcet. She was editing his works and even writing drafts of speeches that Condorcet went on to deliver, almost word for word, in the National Assembly. She wrote articles that were published in their joint endeavor, the journal Le Republicain. 
there is finally convincing evidence that she authored large sections of his famous Cinq Memoirs sur l'instruction publique of 1791. Grouchy was no longer his secretary, but an equal co-creator. And she was acknowledged as such. Contemporary journals noted her production of texts. When Condorcet was appointed Commissioner of the Treasury in April 1791, helped by Grouchy's own machinations, she made, made it clear to the royalist faction that while he was running the treasury, she was in charge of appointing a secretary for the treasury. And when Emmanuel Sieyès came to discuss a potential break with the court par party in early June 1791, it was with both Monsieur et Madame de Condorcet. How should we interpret Grouchy's role? One way is to apply Carla Hess's brilliant research on the explosion of women's writing at the time of the French Revolution. Hess argues that women exploited loosened laws around printing during this period to write and publish. In doing so, they were, quote, participating in the advancement of public reason. According to Hess, in demonstrating their ability to reason about general interests, these women were in turn laying claim to their right to, quote, moral self-determination, and thus their autonomy as moral individuals. Grouchy was doing something similar. She was publicly inserting herself into the political arena and thus asserting herself as an autonomous individual. In doing so, she was also declaring the importance of autonomous individuals in general to the new French polity. Here I am, she seemed to be saying, I am a fully autonomous person and as such, I have an important political role to play. Nevertheless, Grouchy's contributions were almost all in the context of a partnership with Condorcet. This did not have to be the case. Grouchy had already drafted her letters on sympathy alone. I suggest that her revolutionary collaboration was evidence of Grouchy's conviction that while autonomous individuals were essential for a French Republic, these individuals must also share emotional and rational ties with others, which bind them to a larger collective. Her marriage, and in particular, the collaborative partnership with Condorcet that developed during the early years of the French Revolution, was a microcosm of the Republic that she hoped to see established in France. It will be made up of free and equal individuals who nevertheless came together, linked as she described it by quote, mutual affection to work towards a larger goal. Indeed, she made almost precisely this argument in a newly attributed article for the Bulletin des Amis de la Vérité from 1793. Arguing that for a stable polity, people must be attached by ties of quote, sentiment, she criticizes unmarried people for their lack of roots. Entirely autonomous people are viewed with suspicion. They are, she suggests, lacking the deep connections that would give them an emotional investment in their society. Considering Grouchy's relationship with Condorcet can thus, see, can thus help us see that during the early years of the French Revolution, Grouchy developed a form of modern republicanism, which prioritized both the autonomous individual and the collective. In her marriage, she thus developed the ideas that she had first set out in her letters on sympathy into an innovative political theory. Yet, just like her marriage to Condorcet, Grouchy's faith in a French Republic based entirely on sympathetic links between citizens was not to last. Let us now fast forward to 1800. Grouchy has lived through the terror. She has, a fact hitherto unknown to historians, conspired with the revolutionary general, Lazare Orche, to have her brother, Emmanuel Grouchy, put in charge of the disastrous expedition to land French troops in Bantry Bay in 1796. 
she has greeted Napoleon's coup d'etat with delight and, also undiscovered until now, helped to launch a pro Bonaparte journal in 1799. Yet, by the turn of the century, she is becoming disillusioned with the conquering hero Bonaparte, and the pieces she contributes to the journal, Citoyen Francais, are becoming increasingly dark in tone. She is particularly worried about one thing, masks. Now, before you think I'm making this up to be topical, this is actually true. An article published in February 1800, and most likely written by Grouchy, fumed, quote, iron masks, cardboard masks, masks in the street, masks in the offices, carnival masks, masks on all faces. This is what makes us despair. But Grouchy's real anxiety was not about foggy glasses or raw ears, but, quote, the mask which almost all poor humans put on their faces to hide either their morals or their opinions, including displaying, quote, a sensibility that they did not really feel. In other words, Grouchy was becoming more and more concerned about a growing lack of authenticity in French society. People were, quite simply, faking how they felt and thought. <clears throat> As I'm sure you will have realized, this posed a real philosophical problem for Grouchy. Her concept of sympathy, and therefore her entire political vision, relied on an open connection between people. As she put it in her letters on sympathy, quote, we feel a painful impression when we see a sensitive being suffer or when we know that he suffers. Our self-interest leads us to want to stop that pain for both us and them, and we therefore take the first step on the road to morality. But what if, when we see someone in pain, our first reaction is to wonder whether they are faking it? We won't have that same sympathetic reaction and thus that same desire to stop it. The mechanism is broken and the system on which our knowledge of rights depends collapses. The interesting thing is that this was always a potential threat to Grouchy's system. Indeed, two of the philosophers who are hugely influential in her thinking, Smith and Rousseau, deal at length with the problem of duplicity and dissimulation. So why does Grouchy only begin to worry about it in 1800? The answer, in my opinion, is pretty straightforward. Napoleon and his secret police. The evidence is clear that Grouchy and her circle were deeply suspicious of Napoleon's secret police. Claude Fauriel, who became Grouchy's lover around 1801 and with whom she remained until her death in 1822, had been the secretary of Joseph Fouché, Napoleon's minister of police between 1799 and 1802, and developed a particular distaste for the organization. In an unpublished manuscript, he dedicated page upon page to his fear and loathing of what he called, quote, this kind of authority new in the annals of mankind. And it is clear that they had reason to be on their guard. Grouchy was, at times, certainly under surveillance. As early as 5th of December 1800, a report to the Parisian Prefecture of Police describes Grouchy as being overheard, quote, in a house where she believes she can think aloud, talking about the viability of a challenge by Louis-Philippe Orléans to, the, to Napoleon's regime. Arthur O'Connor, the exiled United Irishman who had become Grouchy's son-in-law, was monitored closely when he first arrived in France in 1802. Joseph Mungot, the police commissioner of Calais, even went so far as to search the boxes O'Connor had sent from England, convinced that they would be full of incriminating documents, and was hugely indignant to find that they contained nothing but silver cutlery. Most worrisome of all for Grouchy and her circle was the effect of this constant surveillance on the population of France. As Fauriel wrote, 
The people do not venture to express their ideas and feelings, dreading above all that their words might be overheard by the spies who are gliding about everywhere to pick up every expression or murmur of discontent. Napoleon and his police were fostering a duplicitous people who were increasingly incapable of sharing their thoughts and sentiments with each other. In such a context, according to Grouchy's theory, the populace of France would never be able to act morally towards one another or be able to recognize their own or others' natural rights. They had returned to a situation reminiscent of Ancien Regime France, against which Grouchy had first railed in her letters on sympathy. So what to do? Well, what Grouchy did was, I suggest, a form of voting with her feet. After 1802, she moved her salon from Paris, where it had been based since 1787, to a house that she had purchased in the small town of Moulin, about 40 kilometers to the northwest of Paris. The guests who came to the Maisonnette, as she misleadingly dubbed this mansion-like dwelling, experienced a very different form of hospitality from that that they had enjoyed in the urban setting. Firstly, they stayed for much longer periods in a much more intimate manner. Rather than attending an evening soiree, which was confined to the public dining and drawing rooms, they would visit for weeks or even months and relax in bedrooms and private apartments. The guests were therefore privy to intimate family details. Julie Talma, for example, a close, albeit critical friend of Grouchy, reported with relish on a squabble that had broken out between Grouchy and Fauriel. Apparently, Grouchy wanted Fauriel to eat more beef. And when the quote, little rebel refused, Grouchy instructed the maid not to give him any coffee so that Fauriel would quote, bear the brunt of his disobedience. Secondly, the form, as well as the setting of sociability had shifted. As in a more traditional urban-based 18th century salon, intellectual pursuits remained high on the agenda. There were discussions of recently published works and works in progress, as well as the performance of texts. However, these were also interspersed with long walks in the surrounding countryside. This was such a constant theme of life in Moulin that, in writing to him, Alessandro Manzoni joked to Fourier that this letter will probably find you up a mountain. These rambles were, moreover, social occasions. The German bookseller who sold Grouchy's edition of the Earth de Condorcet in 1804 wrote how much he looked forward to, quote, taking walks with you on my arrival in the lovely surroundings of Moulin. This adapted form of sociability served, I suggest, both a practical and an ideological purpose. For a group who had learned that they could no longer, quote, think aloud in Paris, a shift to the countryside was highly attractive. It was, quite simply, far more difficult to be overheard by informants in the middle of a deserted field or at the top of a mountain than in a crowded urban drawing room. If all of those present were hand-picked and intimate friends, so much the better. Yet there was also, I suggest, a Rousseauian element in Grouchy and Fourier's retreat to the Maisonnette. Famously, in the final years of his life, when he saw himself as having been cast out by the human race, Rousseau had composed his unfinished Les Rêveries du Promeneur Solitaire, in which he described the meditations which had assailed him on his daily walks. I must only look for consolation, hope, or peace in my own breast, he wrote, a self-sufficiency that in turn led him to, quote, discover new reasons to love nature. Indeed, Fauriel used language perhaps intentionally reminiscent of Rousseau to describe his desire for a life that was rêveuse and vegetative. This would be, he said, an indispensable remedy to prevent me from falling into the last degree of melancholy. 
Yet, while Rousseau had declared himself, quote, alone for the rest of my life, Cruchy and Fauriel instead uses reverie to inspire a new form of sociability that was based on the intimacy of shared meditations and a mutual love of nature. This dual emphasis on the internal life of the individual and the sharing of this self is of a piece with Grouchy's earlier philosophy. Yet we can also see a definite shift. The group with whom the self was being shared was no longer the broad citizenry of a republic, but a circle of intimate friends. Had the social replaced the political for Grouchy? Well, not quite. I suggest that in turning her back on the urban social landscape, Grouchy was indicating a desire to remove the fostering of proper emotional and rational faculties from the political sphere. Napoleon had demonstrated an eagerness to manipulate the emotions of his people. Grouchy's life at the Maisonette suggests a growing belief that sympathy was best nurtured in a depoliticized society of like-minded individuals embedded in the natural world. But this nurturing of sympathy still had a political end. There is one final piece of evidence that I'd like to put forward for this contention. This is another Citoyen Francais article, probably authored by Grouchy and published in late 1799. Here, Grouchy appeals for the first time to the idea of, quote, civil liberty. In the France of this period, civil liberty was commonly used to describe the right of citizens to have non-political interests. As Benjamin Constant would famously put it in a slightly different context, civil liberty created a protected space for, quote, the enjoyment of private pleasures. This seems to describe well the sphere that Grouchy created at her Maisonette. Yet Grouchy is clear that the ultimate end of civil liberty is political. She wrote, it is civil liberty which feeds political liberty. It is by civil liberty that political liberty breathes. Civil liberty would, she argued, create liberal affections, which would in turn lead to true political freedom. Political liberty achieved through sympathy was still Grouchy's principal goal. In the face of Napoleon's, Napoleon's damaging regime, she had simply added another step, a protected civil, civil sphere to ensure that sympathy would be properly fostered and freedom achieved. In taking this step, Grouchy was entering into the territory of what later historians would label liberalism. It should be noted that other than in the lines just quoted, Grouchy never used the term liberal and never belonged to any official party block of that name. However, her later ideas do share family resemblances with those forwarded by early French liberal thinkers. In particular, the idea that a sphere outside the state should shoulder the responsibility of inculcating virtues in the citizenry, virtues that were nevertheless recognizably political. However, moreover, it is clear that Benjamin Constant, the so-called first theorist of liberalism and a close friend of Grouchy in the early years of the 19th century, read and engaged with Grouchy's work when composing his own texts. But alas, there is no time to explore this further now. Please feel free to ask me about it in a moment if you would like. In the few minutes remaining to me, I will instead briefly indicate why I think this narrative I have sketched here of Grouchy's developing political thought from ancien regime natural rights thinker to revolutionary Republican, Republican to 19th century proto-liberal may be of more general interest. The first point is its impact on a broader story of the history of liberalism. Revisionist historians, such as Helena Rosenblatt, have done much in recent years to divest the history of liberalism of its association with atomistic individualism. 
Rosenblatt, in particular, has argued that central to historical liberalism is the sense of, quote, one's connectedness to other citizens. Yet in doing so, I fear that Rosenblatt and others have swung too far the other way. Crucial to a certain strand of early liberal debates, those in which Grouchy participated, was the question of how to balance the importance of the individual and his or her rights with the need for a sense of fraternity, solidarity, and the collective good. This is a question that still haunts us today, particularly in this time of isolation that COVID has brought about. Public debates about how to unite separated and unique individuals into a body with a desire for collective action grow ever louder, and the discussions seem to repeatedly return to the idea of empathy. I do not suggest that we can find answers in Grouchy's thought, but we can perhaps find new ways of approaching the problem. Finally, I hope that the methodology that I demonstrated today might prove useful to other historians who wish to recover the ideas of those like Grouchy, who we know thought deeply, but who left comparatively few written traces behind them. These figures were, in the majority of cases, women or non-white. Deprived of the opportunity to systematically commit their ideas to paper, they instead voted with their feet and thought with their bodies. Many of these individuals played crucial, if hitherto undiscovered, roles in shaping the world we inhabit today. As Dubati, Condorcet and Cruchy did for the Trois Rouets, we should lift them out of the vaults of history, where they have been left forgotten and neglected. But unlike the, in the case of Pradier, Simmer and Lartoise, this is not a question of justice for the historical individuals in question. It will be to our detriment and very much our own loss if we don't, do not learn about them in any way we can. Thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> thanks enormously, uh, Kathleen. That's um, a really, really stimulating paper. And um, I'm sure it's given <coughs> a, lot, a lot of questions. Um, just uh, while those are coming in, um, can I ask you about the historiographical neglect you mentioned at the beginning of your paper. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of the comparison with Christy and guessing that Grouchy knew quite well, which is uh, Manon uh, Roland, um, who I, I think it's safe to say has received more than her fair share of scholarly attention. Um, they're both moving in very similar circles in the early 1790s. They are attached to uh, powerful, politically active men. They're, they're, they have similar political affiliations with the uh, uh, with the Brissotin. Um Roland has been well written about uh, extensively. Why has Grouchy been so neglected? It seems, given what you've described, it seems a remarkable oversight in the scholarship. Yeah, I mean that's a really interesting question, um, and I think. Um, I think there are lots of reasons. Um, I think there are two really, uh, really sort of key reasons for it. Um, I think one um, is the fact that uh, Manon Roland was killed in the terror and Cruchy wasn't. Mm. Um, I think that's actually really important um, because it meant that um, Roland um, essentially had her kind of 
sort of moment of fame, as it were. And she had the trial and she also really, really crucially had this kind of moment in prison where she essentially decided to sit down and write her memoirs. Um, because she said, although Hornor had this sort of attitude, which was different from Grouchy's, where she kind of always said, um, it was quite Rousseauian in the sense of uh, women should kind of be at the home, in the home. She was very political, but it was a, it, in a more kind of withdrawn way than Grouchy. Um, once she was in prison, she said, I'm going to write my memoirs. Um, Grouchy, and that was basically under pressure of the, of the guillotine. She knew she had this kind of last moment. Grouchy kind of never did that. Um, she never kind of had this sort of moment of fame in the same way um, as Manon Holland did. Um, so although she was actually, um, kind of very well known in the revolution and really a target for, for, for royalist propaganda in particular, and also from the Montagnard later on, um, she avoided the guillotine. So I think that's quite important. Um, I think the other reason, um, and possibly even more important, is it was partly intentional um, in the 19th century that um, Grouchy kind of slightly obscured her own importance. Um, and this kind of goes back to what I was talking about a little bit at the end, um, is that this kind of retreat that she and Fauriel um, kind of in, in, engaged in um, from about 1802, um, which was immediately sort of intended to kind of avoid the attention of Napoleon and his secret police, who were they, they were genuinely very worried about. Um, and they they sort of wanted to say, oh, we're not actually really that important, and um, we're we're going to take a little bit of a step back from politics. Um, and they they kind of wanted to slightly glaze over what they were doing. Um, and a lot of um, historians, I think, kind of took that at at surface value. Um, they're actually very very busy under the surface. Um, they publish couple of things together, um, which we can talk about in, in more detail if you want. But a lot of historians kind of say, oh, okay, well, Condorcet died and that was sort of it for Grouchy. She didn't really do very much after that, um, which is actually completely untrue. She had a very, very busy intellectual life, but she sort of intentionally obscured it uh, because she saw that one of the safest ways for her to continue was to slightly go under the radar. Um, a lot of the stuff she published was either anonymous or was in connection with another man, so her name's not on it. And that was kind of an intentional move from her, particularly in the 19th century. Um, so I think it's basically she was almost too successful in covering her tracks, as it were. Okay, right, thanks very much. Um, there's a uh, question that's just come in from uh, Céline Tebois, and um, Céline, would you like to, uh, would you like to uh, deliver that question yourself? Can you unmute, Celine? I've um hi there. Can you unmute? Okay. Um I will read out Celine's question instead. We seem to have a connection issue there. And that's uh Celine says, thank you for that this fascinating lecture in 1747. Uh, Maitre uh, wrote uh, Man and Machine, in which he denounced the cowardice of French philosophers of the Enlightenment for not telling the real results of their experiences and hiding behind the mask of religion in order not to be troubled by political powers. Uh, in this work, Maitre extends Descartes' theory of animal machines to the human. Later, he also wrote Man as a Plant. Um, so in Grouchy's oeuvre, is sympathy solely thought from a humanist perspective, or is there any trace of a concept of sympathy thought beyond the scope of the human and extended to other living beings? Um, 
yeah, that's that's a very interesting question. Um, and there has been sort of a fair amount of work done, uh, of which I'm sort of aware of the kind of edges of it about mm. a kind of animals and so on in, in the Enlightenment. Um, from Grouchy's perspective, she is very much focused on on humans, and she doesn't really extend it to um, you know where that kind of animals feel sympathy. Um, and in fact, um, although she doesn't really, I, I can't say there's something she really talks about. Um, for her, this is one of the key things that make humans human. Um, and she she shares with Condorcet the idea that the reason why humans have rights is because they are essentially. Uh, able to share particular sentiments and they are able to reason um, and these are kind of the key bases on which humans um, owe their kind of natural rights essentially um, so the, it is for her quite important that it's human the flip side of that is that she's also the reason why that focus is important is because she's fighting against this uh, idea that's very current under the ancien regime is that um different rights are owed to different people due to their status. Um, so she's very much fighting against that in the sense of, no, it's all about humanity. Um, so all humans are owed this. It's not because they're men, it's not because they're women, it's not because they're a noble or a commoner, it's because they're human. Um, but that's why her focus is very firmly kind of on humanity um, as opposed, and that's the distinction she's making, human and, and not human, as opposed to kind of noble and not human man or woman. But no, she, she doesn't really talk about that. Um, I mean, a quick notice that she does later on kind of get interested in in the natural world uh, very much, um, and there's a there's a kind of a, a hint of romanticism kind of coming in. Um, but again, it's very much on the the natural world's impact on humanity. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll leave it there. I think. Uh, but thank you. That's that. I I wasn't. I'm not. Don't really know that much about Lamentry, but that's a very very interesting question. So thank you very much. Thank you. Sorry, I wasn't able to unmute earlier. Really sorry. There's another question here from James Cashman, and he wants to know what were uh, her religious views? How far was she was she connected to, to uh, uh, revolutionary clerics like Claude Fauché, um, who's obviously a fellow Girondin, and to uh, contemporary approaches to trying to inculcate republican virtues through Catholicism slash Christianity? So, um, yeah, Grouchy was very much not uh, a Christian, not a Catholic um, from a really quite an early age. She was sent to this was mostly because she was sent to a um, nunnery when she was quite young, not as a, she didn't take orders. This was basically as a kind of a finishing school, essentially, for, for young noble women. Uh, she absolutely hated the experience um, and um, came back reading kind of Voltaire and Husserl. Uh, her mother was completely shocked by this apparently and burnt all her Husserl volumes because she thought it was atheistic essentially. Um, and she apparently told her daughter later, her daughter wrote a brief biography of her, that um, she could never reconcile the idea of um, a good God with only a small number of people going to heaven. And this was her main kind of gripe with kind of the existence of any God basically. Um, and so uh, she, she wasn't really religious and this, continued throughout her life. So when she was buried, she wasn't buried. So she died in 1822. So obviously this is after the restoration and after there is a, um, a, a big kind of um, a renaissance as it were of, of, of Catholicism in, in, in French life. Uh, she's buried without any religious ceremony whatsoever. Um, and um, she, she's, she continues very firm on that. Um, it, this becomes quite interesting because, as I said later on, um, she has uh, a very kind of interesting intellectual relationship with uh, Constant. Um, and what I think, um, kind of, my, one of part of my argument in my thesis is 
one of the things that Constant does is I think he takes a lot of her ideas about sympathy um, and um, melds them into his own ideas about religious sentiment. Um, so he he is the place to look, I think, if you're interested in in some of the things that she's talking about, about sympathy and sentiment and inculcating re Republican virtues and so on, but with a kind of a more religious bent because he's worried that he thinks sympathy is a really good idea and really important in politics, but he's worried it's not gonna be strong enough if there isn't something else that kind of bolsters it. And he thinks, Constant thinks that maybe religion is, is the thing to do this. But Grouchy was always determined that religion was gonna do more harm than good, basically. Um, okay, thanks very much. And there's a question from Ethna Fitzgerald who, who, who'd like to know whether uh, she was involved in any group for the agitation for women's rights or political equality. Yeah, I mean, so this is a really interesting question. Um, and um, one of the things that, I mean, you would, you would sort of like her to be. Um, and But one of the things that I, I quite, I find actually most interesting about Grouchy is that there's really no evidence that she was um, and really no evidence that she was particularly interested um, in this issue. I mean, not which doesn't say she wasn't, I'm not saying she, she, she wasn't, but this certainly wasn't her main, she wasn't an alarm to Grouchy, let's put it like that. This wasn't her main priority. Um, and there's a lot kind of written saying, oh, well, um, it must have been her who influenced Condorcet into um, into writing his um, um, Droit de la Cité, um, his kind of important works on 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 women's right to um, have the vote and so on. Um, again, there's very little evidence for that, um, and I don't think it's kind of necessarily the case. Um, and I think again that that's kind of slightly playing into this this idea that I kind of referenced earlier on that one of them must have influenced the other and one of them must have kind of been more important than the other um and i think essentially her where she becomes interesting on kind of women's rights is um her determined non-gendering of uh, of individuals and that's where I think I didn't really have time to talk about it but I talk about it quite a lot in my, in my thesis I think that's where she's really really interesting that can sound like a really bland statement in the face of someone like Alain de Gouge um, but um, it isn't when you put her in the context of someone like Rousseau um, who was very influential in kind of the in revolutionary thinking um, you get this increasing idea of kind of the complementarity of men and women so men and women are built different ways um, they both have kind of different roles in uh, men are kind of political women are domestic and that's that's essentially how they should be by nature Cruci is very, very influenced by Rousseau in general, but in this she completely rejects him. And she says, no, men and women are both individuals. They both have exactly the same moral capacity. They are both precisely as autonomous as one another. And in this sense, they have exactly the same political capacity as one another. They have exactly the same rights as one another. Um, so, and this view actually becomes more and more radical, even though she, she's constant in it, this view becomes more and more radical as the revolution continues and as kind of the Napoleonic era kind of uh, continues because things are growing more conservative. Um, so she was, um, she wasn't kind of actively involved in agitating for women's rights, but by saying women are the same as men in their nature and therefore everything that I'm saying, even though I'm not saying let's fight for women's equality, by saying that everything that I say applies to women just as much as it applies to, to men, that in itself is kind of a hidden radicalism of Grouchy. And that's what I find kind of fascinating.
Um, so that it, it's more subtle, I think, than 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 writing kind of a, a radical treatise about it. But there is certainly a hidden radic radicalism there. Um, I'm sorry if that was a bit of a convoluted answer, but um, yeah. Um, can I bring you back to that uh, February 1800 article on masks and yeah. the concern with the idea of, of dissimulation and the uh, possibility of a lack of authenticity? I suppose my question, I mean, this is a long-standing concern among those who lived through the revolutionary decade. It, it's a lot, it goes well be, before that as well. Is this the first time she expresses this? And if so, I, I mean, I, I take your point about her, her anxieties about the sort of burgeoning Napoleonic police state, but um, why is she so late to the party on this? It's, um, it's, it's, it's not a new issue in a sense in the 1790s. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I find this article really so fascinating, because um, there, are, there are a couple of things about it. One, as you say, it's not a new issue. This was really, really important. Um, it's in particularly in Jacobin, but also in Gironda discourse, um, kind of during the, the early revolution in the terror, this idea of authenticity um, and who's an authentic revolutionary, who's not. Um, and there's this idea that you can, um, increasing idea that you can even just look at someone and know whether they're authentic or not. Um, and this is has, has a lot of traction in the terror and so on. Um, and um, it never comes up uh, with Grouchy. And the reason why I think that's so fascinating is that in both Smith and particularly Rousseau, who are very, very important in her original formulations, these are such important questions. Rousseau is really, really, uh, he really worries a lot about duplicity and about people lying to each other in society and so on. Um, so that's why I do think it is really interesting that she only starts worrying about it in 1800. And what is also interesting about this article is that one of the elements of, of the authenticity discussions earlier in the revolution is this idea that people are maybe duplicitous and so on, but there is a kind of an unmasking um, and you can unmask people. Um, whereas in this article, part, an element of it I didn't quote is she says, maybe we'll never be able to unmask people. Um, maybe there's 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 a there's a huge amount of doubt going on. Maybe she says maybe this is sort of in, inherent, and maybe if we can try and unmask people, we're we're not going to be able to do this. It's, it's an incredibly um, sort of pessimistic article, um, which again is something very. This whole tone is something very new to Grouchy because up to this point she's been she's she's generally very optimistic, um, and I think this is very interesting because you would expect that. Um, it would be the terror that would be a, a major turning point in her thought. Uh, it's the terror where she she loses all her money, um, her husband is killed, um, her basically political ideals seem to be left in the mud. But throughout the directory period, she's basically championing all the same things. Mm. Um, she she doesn't really change, and it's it's the Napoleonic era which really brings about a major major shift in the way that she's thinking. Um, and another thing she does at this point is she turns to she 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 thinks about, she never quite achieves it, but she starts preparing an edition of La, Roche, La Rochefoucauld's Maxims. Um, this is obviously a, a 17th century moralist. Um, and one of the things he's really un associated with in this period is this idea of unmasking. Um, so he's often printed with frontispieces of, of, of uh, taking off masks and so on. Um, so she becomes obsessed with this idea of can you unmask people? How do you un unmask people? Um, and it is, it seems really clear that it is this Napoleonic era that is this, this turning point rather than the terror. Um, and there is some kind of literature. I mean, I, I agree that it's fascinating and it should 
you really think that it should be the terror rather than this point um, that you get this change. Um, but I mean, it does tie in with some of the literature. So for example, um, Andrew Janechill talks about um, how actually it, it, in with a lot of people who share some similar views with her, um, kind of what he calls a sort of liberal Republican kind of crowd, many of whom she's actually personal friends with as well as kind of she has political views. Um, for a lot of them, it is also the Napoleonic era, which which also does provide this major shift. So I think she's she is kind of uh, she's she's showing very similar kind of trends with them, um, yeah. But basically, I agree. It's 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 a little strange, and but I think that's why it's kind of fascinating. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, we don't want to detain you for too too much longer. I, a final question, which is I suppose methodological, and I was intrigued by your um your approach to what you described as reading a relationship um and i wonder if you could uh if you could talk to us a little bit more about that as a as a, a method methodology um when one is the idea that the the marriage can be viewed as an embodiment of a of a <clears throat> rather a relationship uh, can be viewed as an embodiment of a, of a set of political philosophy, uh, political philosophy. and it, it, seems, it seems like a, a really interesting approach to take to it, but also I suppose there's, there's risks inherent in that. Um, so uh, could you maybe talk to us a little bit about how, how does one um, exploit that, but also how does one navigate those risks? Yeah, I mean, so one of the things I wanted to be really careful about when I was doing this was um, was taking into account the fact that when you're looking at someone's sort of lived existence and trying to read it as philosophy, um, on the one hand, you have to take into account their agency. So say, um, when someone's making a decision, take that decision seriously um, and think, you know, why are they, why are they taking a decision? So what are they doing in, in making that decision? But you also have to say, um, you know, everyone is trapped by their circumstances, um, and particularly a woman in a revolution, <laughs> uh, they are trapped by their circumstances. Um, so, you know, there's a balance between between sort of taking agency seriously, but also taking kind of context seriously. Um, and to kind of give, give another example of that, um, one of the things I looked at was her publishing of um, The Lesson on Sympathy, which I, I argue she actually wrote a lot earlier but didn't publish until 1798 um, and I kind of argue her, her manner of publishing that as a companion piece to Smith um, is in itself kind of saying something um, but I also say but at the same time she was desperately in need of money um, so part of this part of her deciding to publish this at this certain point uh, was she just needed some money um, so it's kind of like a balance I think we have to say she was in kind of financial needs so she wanted to publish it to get some money but there is also there are kind of also I think deeper kind of intellectual things going on so I think that's part of it um you have to always kind of make a balance and kind of be aware um but I think um what one of the, the, the kind of deeper methodological um work that I was I was drawing on was um various um sort of the kind of various philosophical projects going on but one is um by Claude Cassidorus he, he kind of talks about this idea of the social imaginary um now what I was doing was not the social imaginary because I wasn't looking at whole groups of people and kind of whole societies um but at certain points um Cassidorus also talks about the individual imaginary um and he says although he doesn't develop it fully he says we can talk about how um people's ideas also get impressed upon 
their daily life and gets expressed in their daily life. Um, although not in an institutional sense, in the same way as you do in the kind of a society, um, you can also look at it on an individual level. Um, and that's essentially where kind of I, I sort of I started from. Um, and I, I essentially wanted to take that seriously um, because I think, I basically think that that is just a true insight. I think that um, humans who think about things as the vast majority of humans do, um, when they take actions, they, to a greater or lesser extent, um, have ideas and principles and so on that, that inform those actions. Um, and within the certain boundaries in which they are able to operate, um, will those will inform those actions. And I wanted to see if, if it was, it was possible to try and dissect some of those, basically work backwards, try and dissect some of those ideas from, from those actions. Um, and um, I guess, yeah, this, this, was, this was sort of the result. Um, and it was, as I, I kind of mentioned, this kind of global intellectual kind of history um, stream, um, because it, there are a lot of global intellectuals. I mean, I don't want to in any way claim that I'm sort of the only one doing this or, or say this is totally innovative because a lot of global intellectual historians are working on this same kind of route. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it's not unreasonable to say that when we do things, we are also thinking about things. Um, and particularly these, I think, it's, I think it's also very true to the way that these, these people were also acting. So for, in terms of the relationship, um, it's very clear that Condorcet and Cruci had certain, for example, epistemological commitments about the way they thought about truth and knowledge and how you get at knowledge. They thought, for example, that the best way to achieve knowledge was collaborative. So taking that insight, I thought, well, why do we talk about in term, why do we talk about influence when we talk about Condorcet and Grouchy? Because they didn't think about it like that. They thought the idea of influence, this was my idea. They basically thought that was rubbish. So it was sort of, it was an attempt to try and get into the way that they thought about things. Um, and how that then would inform their actions. And then sort of, it was, a, it was kind of, it was a, I'm not explaining it terribly well, but like a two-way process, how they thought about things and how that would inform those actions. And then what we could learn back from their actions about how we could, how they thought about things. Okay, because I, I, I think that's a really interesting insight for, for, for early modernists where they, um, in particular, because um, it provides us with a way of, of you know, uh, relating practice to to the ideas that are in in discussion, so that that's um and that's a really really helpful. Thanks very much. Um, so look, um, I'm sure I you know speak for everyone uh, when I say thanks enormously for a really stimulating and, and engaging um, paper, and that's some you know absolutely great ideas in there. And um, so you know, there's virtual applause going out to you. Um, uh, and for the the, uh, the rest of you, I'd like to remind you that we're, we're back uh, next week with uh, Dr. Sean Kelsey from the University of Buckingham, sure, uh, Buckingham, who will be speaking to us on a remonstrance of diverse, remarkable passages, colonialist, colonialist intervention in a metropolitan revolution. So hopefully, I'll, I'll see everyone back uh, then next week. Um, once again, thanks enormously to. To Kathleen McCrudden for her paper and um, best best wishes with uh, with uh, that virtual that virtual uh, graduation um, in Yale. So uh, take care, everyone, and um, hopefully see you see you all next week. Bye.
The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.